Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I am Monish Rath. I'm a partner here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today by one of my partners and good friends, Larry Halperin, whom all of you know uh, by now, who's practiced in the field of OSHA law for many, many years and is uh, one of the, the mavens in the field. Larry, thank you very much for joining me, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Manish, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Larry, we have uh, obviously a very timely topical topic, but I think it's a huge topic as well. Uh, OSHA on Friday published the its rule on respirable crystal and silica, and I think it is going to go down as one of the largest rulemakings in, in several years. Would you agree? Certainly. It's probably got the broadest impact of any rule that's come down on the standard side in ages. And um, imagine David Michaels will consider it his crowning achievement as he leaves the agency probably in December. David Michaels, the head of the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So, so for those of you who are looking at the slides, uh, I'm going to leave this slide on for a moment just to remind you that the audio comes by phone, the webinar comes by the web. A little bit more about me on the first slide and Larry Halpern right here. And you can learn more about us on our website, khlaw.com, so that we can just move on. One of the things, so, so the timing just works out perfectly for the cycle for the OSHA 3030, which we do every 30 days, uh, and we try and do it in, a, in about 30 minutes. No promises. Well, we'll have one caution is we probably haven't read all 1,760 pages thoroughly of, uh, of the 8.5 by 11 version anyway. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've read through it, uh, Larry. <laughs> I have read through it, and it's, it's a tough go. Uh, but there are some parts you can skim. That is, that is for sure. Uh, but, but the timing of the cycle worked out because it was published on Friday, uh, which gave me a real nice treat for the weekend and Monday. And, and here we are with the next OSHA 3030 today on Wednesday. So what we want to do in the first two bullets will tie together. While we overview this newly published rule, we'll give you a comparison to the proposed rule that came out a couple of years ago so that you, you can kind of catch up on what changes if the last time you studied this question was when the proposed rule came out and you were involved in rulemaking, then we'll kind of catch you up on what changes found their way to the final rule. And then we'll, uh, as we always do here at the OSHA 3030, we'll try and speak practically and provide some practical tips on what we think employers should do. And uh, finally, real briefly, talk about some of the potential post-rule challenges that we think uh, may exist out there. Uh, so let's talk about the rule. <clears throat> I think we should step back and start with a real brief background on respirable crystal and silica. When I say crystal and silica, I'm talking about maybe one of the most commonly uh, found substances on Earth. It is found in sand, stone, rock. Uh, you'll find it in concrete, brick, and mortar. And it's also uh, applied to paints, fillers, and a lot of other materials that we touch and see and are surrounded by every day. Now, when you see it in sand, stone, rock, concrete, brick, whatever, you'll find that it is uh, embedded. And the potential for real respirable exposure or exposure through the respiratory uh, system uh, really only practically speaking happens when you're talking about processing that material that contains silica. When you take, for example, stone, rock, brick, uh, you'll see exposure to, uh, to crystal silica through the respiratory system, only when you're cutting it, sawing it, drilling it, also with stone crushing, uh, there has to be some kind of processing that uh, 
produces a dust byproduct. Uh, handling of this kind of material like rock, concrete, brick has to come in those kinds of forms. Typical day-to-day -day handling, moving it, isn't going to yield uh, substantial or measurable amounts of respirable crystalline silica. Larry? No, I think that's the point. There are some probably agricultural or basically uh, crop-related materials or even more moving round around in terms of construction where you're going to find some heavier concentrations of silica naturally occurring in the ground and you're going to generate dust from those things. And they also certainly will cause problems as well as all the things that go on with the highway construction, bridge construction, and building construction, you name it. You'll also find it when you're dealing with the manufacturing industries of material, using materials that contain crystalline silica, like glass, pottery. Foundries uh, use sand in the process, uh, and so you'll see uh, the exposure to potential, leave the exposure to respirable crystalline silica in the foundries industry as well. Jewelry, when cutting, can uh, yield respirable crystalline silica as a byproduct. Uh, as well as uh, sand is used in hydraulic fracturing, and uh, crystalline silica emanates from the hydraulic fracturing process as well. Uh, when you talk about the word respirable, because that is the part that is regulated and of interest to uh, OSHA, you're talking about a size that's so small that it's not visible. Uh, it can be up to 10 micrograms in size uh, as measured by mass, but I, I should point out that uh, we're talking about a size that's not only not visible, but OSHA claims can be as small as a hundredth of the size of an ordinary grain of sand. We're talking about playground sand, for example. Uh, that, when you get down to that size of respirable crystalline silica, uh, the material is associated uh, with disease. And uh, OSHA has stated in its preamble that it believes respirable crystalline silica is associated not only with silicosis, uh, but also with lung cancer, COPD, uh, or pulmonary disease, and uh, kidney diseases as well. Uh, and they have uh, made this assertion as a basis for the um, justification for rulemaking on respirable crystal and silica. So, you know, Larry, as you've pointed out, this is something that OSHA has had it in its intent to, to regulate for many, many years, decades. And... It finally, and it, it's uh, submitted to Sabrifa in 2003, its report. Uh, it stayed there for easily a decade uh, where nothing happened. And Actually, the way I recall the panel, because I worked a lot with the construction coalition, the, the report essentially politely told OSHA to go back to the drawing board because the, because the requirements were too stringent and overly burdensome and weren't justified in many cases. And if you look at actually the proposal in the final rule, there there are many comments made in the Sabrifa panel that were adopted by OSHA and recognized, such as eliminating the uh, requirement for protective clothing. That's right, and, but it didn't take 10 years for them to do that. From that date, they, they were, there was many there were many years where nothing happened. It was an extensive period of time developing you write a risk assessment, and then there was a peer review of the risk assessment. There was a hope that that would become available to the public for review prior to the rulemaking, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. So. And then finally, in 2013, they published their mm -hmm. proposed rule. Uh, the comment period was uh, briefly extended. Comments were due February 2013, and uh, they conducted hearings uh, in the following two months. Uh, I think they received well over 2,000 comments, 
and last Friday they published the final rule. And that brings us current. Uh, essentially, the architecture of the, the standard, well, I should first of all point out that there are, there's a standard for general industry and the maritime segment, and then there's a standard for the construction industry under Section 1926. And uh, the architecture for these standards, although I'll sometimes refer to them singularly, uh, is, is typical of a health standard. Mm -hmm. It starts off with a permissible exposure level and an action level, and uh, it, it talks about the initial step of conducting an exposure assessment. Uh, it requires a written exposure control plan. It talks about control measures like engineering controls and work practice controls, PPE. Uh, and then it goes into your training and dissemination of information to employees. Uh, it has requirement for ongoing exposure monitoring. Uh, there's a medical surveillance requirement and uh, record keeping requirement. Uh, and then the last section, it talks about its effective date and the end of the phase in of various aspects of the standard. And so that's an overview of the architecture of the standard. We're going to get into each of these, each in their turn. Uh, the first thing to talk about is the permissible exposure level and uh, action level. Uh, what, what used to be the case is that there was a uh, – a slightly different measurement method in, in construction and general industry, and now they've harmonized that uh, and have moved both to 50 micrograms per cubic meter. That is uh, about half of what you would have seen in general industry standard, and although the measurement is different uh, for construction, it's, it's probably fifth, I think, is what yeah, about a fifth. Was estimating. That's right. right. And now they have a uniform action level as well of 25 micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, this is what they had proposed in the notice of proposed rulemaking as well. So that hasn't changed from 2013's proposed rule. Uh, but I think this is important. I think that this is the beginning point for where employers will start to recognize what their obligations are under the standard. Uh, and, and it has based these numbers on its own assessment of significant risk and residual risk, Larry. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the normal approach based on a footnote in the benzene Supreme Court decision is it one in a thousand would be the, I guess, the, the highest level that would be considered um, permissible risk, if you want to call it that, that would be still acceptable. Um, that means that one in a thousand workers experiencing either fatality or potentially a severe illness over a working lifetime. Oh, should do some risk estimates for silicosis, cancer, the renal disease, and a couple other health hazards and determined, at least for the three major categories, that every single one of those categories had a significant risk of well over one per thousand over a working lifetime. Um, I won't go into the details, but they did the usual uh, analysis, plotting exposure data against results, uh, used the linear extrapolation down to zero, and based on all that came up with a risk assessment that said that the risk at 50 micrograms, it was still somewhere, as I recall, in the 8 to 20-something per thousand range for the various, each of the three diseases. There's probably some overlaps, but, you know, well over, OSHA says well over the significant risk level. Uh, however, they set the, the Pell at 50 because that was the lowest level that could feasibly be obtained or achieved by most of the regulated industry, and that's the general standard. It would have been possible to reduce the pill theoretically for some sectors, but not for everyone. And given the nature of silicon, the way it's basically handled and processed, 
the potential would have been that you'd have somebody working right next to somebody else, and one of them would have been subject to one standard, and one of them would have been subject to the other one because they were performing different tasks in the same environment. And uh, OSHA went through the same analysis in connection with the chromium standard and decided it was more appropriate to adopt a uniform standard uh, that could easily be enforced and understood by both the regulatory people and the industry people who are responsible for compliance rather than trying to segregate tasks out and having different levels. And then the traditional approach is to put the action level at half the pill with the idea that you would maintain the exposure levels below, well below the pill with that additional protective measure. And in this case, what OSHA is saying is even at the action level, you still theoretically have a residual risk that's well over one per thousand. So, so that's the permissible exposure limits and uh, action level. Uh, I think the first step, very clearly, is an exposure assessment. Uh, what OSHA has put into the final rule. Well, let me go back. So, yeah, sure. So I guess the issue there is um, each employer, for example, will then have to make a determination about whether they should attempt to achieve a lower exposure level, assuming this standard is upheld and not found to be an error in terms of OSHA's findings, and whether that would mean potentially requiring respiratory use to get the exposures down to some lower level. And then the issue, of course, would be what would you put a material safety data sheet in order to satisfy tort obligations and potentially the obligation to disclose that OSHA has determined that the exposure levels that are permitted would still leave you with a residual risk of over one in a thousand. Um, there's also a HASCOM component to this where uh, OSHA would take the view that although the standard regulates respirable crystalline silica, you wouldn't assume that if you don't have something in a respirable form that it's not covered by HASCOM because you've got all the usual issues about downstream use and grinding and all those things that can reduce the particle size. So there's a you need to make sure that you understand that this doesn't mean that's the end of the obligation to cover crystalline silica under HASCOM that's not respirable at the time, let's say, it's shipped. Go ahead. So I think the first question uh, to address is how to figure out where your exposure levels are, at, where, where they're at. Mm -hmm. And and that's the first step uh, in the standard is to conduct an exposure assessment. Um, and that can be done through initial monitoring or uh, by being able to point to objective data. Uh, Which usually means industry-wide data or some sort of testing. For, for that same activity, right. Right. Uh, there's going to be some judgment calls about how that's used because the standard gives an example of taking a sample of somebody performing the same task on the same shift and doesn't talk about it performing the same task on another shift. And so you've got all those things that are individually have to be addressed. And, and you know, these next few bullets, Larry, go to a question that we're getting from, from one of our attendees, one of the members of the OSHA 3030 community. Uh, the standard calls for uh, conducting uh, initial monitoring through, or any monitoring through a specified type of sampling device and sending it to a qualified lab for analysis. Um, the question is, uh, is the permissible exposure limit based on micrograms of silica per cubic meter, or is it based on micrograms of particulate that contains silica per cubic meter? In other words, is there a threshold percentage of silica in the airborne particulate that triggers the standard. And I think this is a fair question and one we've discussed, you and I, over the past few days. Um, 
the 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 measure is for the percentage of respirable crystalline silica that uh, that hits the permissible exposure level. Right, and the question is going to be how to properly determine that. Right, and that's not as easy as Don has said. So I hope that answers your question. It goes to the question of the the how much respirable crystal and silica uh, in terms of micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, <clears throat> if when conducting the exposure assessment, the result is at or above the permissible exposure level, this would trigger all of the requirements of the standard. Uh, and if it's in between at, at the action level and not as high as the permissible exposure level, then that would trigger some of the requirements, the medical, mo uh, the medical surveillance and the monitoring, as well as the training. Right. right? Uh, so, so the next step is the development of an exposure control plan, assuming that you, you have a permissible exposure level trigger. Uh, an, an employer has to develop a written exposure control plan, uh, and that applies to, you know, it's expressly described in the general industry and the maritime standard, uh, and in the construction standard, it has language that refers to it indirectly. It says that the employer must use a competent person to implement an exposure control plan, and that competent person must be the one to conduct frequent and regular inspections to make sure that the exposure control plan is being complied with, and they need to inspect things like uh, inspect the whole job site, the materials being used, the equipment uh, being employed. And that's basically echoing what's currently in the construction industry standards. That's right. So <clears throat> that's the control uh, exposure control plan. Uh, I think the, the, that the bulk of attention, in a lot of ways, is on control methods. Uh, OSHA obviously favors engineering controls uh, as the primary method of uh, control, and uh, the use of respirators has always been subordinate in here as well and is required, uh, engineering controls would be required even if respirators would be needed in order to achieve uh, exposure below the permissible exposure level. In other words, uh, in order to get to the point where you're using respirators, even if an employer knows that it will need to use respirators anyways, it still needs to implement mm -hmm. engineering controls, which can often be incredibly costly. Mm -hmm. But those have to be done first anyway. Right. And we really should say engineering controls and work practices in that category would have to be done to the extent feasible to achieve the pill. To the extent that they weren't able to do that, then PPE could be used. But the point is the fact that PPE would be used and would be required nevertheless does not excuse using the engineering controls and work practices to the extent possible to reduce the exposure levels close to the pill as possible. And then they introduced uh, in the construction standard uh, a table called Table 1, uh, and what they referred to as a control banding approach. In Table 1, for specific tasks in the table, there are specific remediation methods that can be employed. And uh, Table 1 is meant, I think, intended to be uh, uh, helpful methods to, for, for employers to comply. This can also be used in general industry and maritime, uh, if the task being performed is irregularly performed uh, and similar to the types of tasks uh, as described in the construction context. Uh, and the, the benefit that the employer gets out of following Table 1 is that, the, that if they follow the Table 1 methods, then they, they do not need to conduct exposure assessment and monitoring. Uh, but, of course, they do still have to verify that the methods that they're using under Table 1 are effective controls, control mm -hmm. methods. 
uh, which which sort of brings me back around anyways. Well, we worked with the Construction Coalition way back during the briefer process and said to OSHA, we've got data that shows if you use these particular measures, you'll adequately control exposures down to the appropriate level. OSHA accepted that idea, developed it a little, and refined it somewhat. It's also in the, I guess it's the ASTM standard for silica, something similar. And it's certainly, especially for the construction industry where you have dynamic conditions and it's almost impossible to regular, you know, measure somebody's exposure on a timely basis and then have it be applicable to the next task, this kind of thing makes a lot more sense. So, in addition to the engineering controls and the Table 1 uh, control banding methods, uh, there are work practices, as you mentioned, Larry, and uh, one of the things they discussed about housekeeping, uh, whereas in the proposal they had prohibited the use of dry sweeping and compressed air, uh, under the final rule, what they said is that dry sweeping is permissible if it would not contr uh, contribute to exposure, uh, but they otherwise would limit the use of dry sweeping and compressed air, except where, where other methods are, are considered infeasible. Um, Larry, go ahead. People are going to have to watch that provision and decide whether it's worth going back to the agency for some further relief. Obviously, it has to be through a petition for review. But if the standard is actually whether something's infeasible, and that means whether it's technically or economically infeasible, that could involve going to an awful lot of expense to bring a, a vacuum cleaner onto a site that's battery powered because, of course, there's no power to the site, but in theory it might be possible to use a vacuum cleaner. And those vacuum cleaners get a heck of a lot more expensive than a broom and a brush. Yeah. Thousands of dollars, potentially. I'm also concerned that there's, there's not a lot of specificity. They sort of throw the employer out there to figure this out on their own that uh, dry sweeping uh, or compressed air are only permissible where other methods are infeasible and they wouldn't contribute to exposure. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult uh, position to put the employer in to figure that out. Uh, and then later maybe cite them if OSHA, if the Compliance Safety and Health Officer disagreed. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's going to be difficult for OSHA to do this factual determination, in my mind, to right. show that this sweeping has actually increased the exposure level whether it means to be de minimis or something significant, and of course you have to be over the action level or it's not relevant. And so if the test is infeasibility, well, there's always an infeasibility defense anyway, so my, my question is what has this really contributed to the rule? And one of our community members is asking how do they define feasible in this context? Uh, and that's, that's a, a fair question because now, as I said before, it's left to the employer to decide how difficult these other methods are. Uh, well, the, the difference that I would see in putting feasible into the standard is normally a feasibility determination would be based on what's feasible for an industry sector as a whole. And that's in the context of rulemaking. So here they're basically asking what's feasible, and it's not clear whether they're talking about but theoretically that means the individual employer. Uh, that remains to be seen. Right, and I would think that if I had to hazard a definition as applied by the Compliance Safety and Health Officer, it would be impossible or uh, can't be done within the costs of the delivery of the product or service. Larry, or, you or threaten the economic viability of that business. Of that business, right, yeah. right, or at least mm -hmm. that establishment. Uh, okay. So so then we talk about regulated areas. Uh, 
the standard calls for regulated areas, and Larry, uh, it's slightly different in uh, the general industry and the construction standard. In the general industry standard, the theory is more often than not, if it's not a construction activity within the normal manufacturing environment, let's say, that you have continuing type processes, whether the batch or continuous, it's the same exposures all the time, and so you're either going to have regulated areas where the exposures are going to be above the pale where they're not, but it's going to be something that's reliably going to be the same. In the construction industry, you got people moving dirt over one place and putting up brick concrete in another place and mixing concrete someplace else and you know, polishing off a granite tabletop someplace else. You get so much stuff going on that any attempt to establish a regulated area would probably last for 3 to 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes and it would go away. And I think we convinced OSHA that was so impossible that they basically decided it was inappropriate to, to establish regulated areas. So you have a form, the formality of regulated area in general industry where it's ongoing every day. That area of a manufacturing mm -hmm. facility, for example, would always be a regulated area uh, with posted warnings included. But in construction, you just have to have policies, procedures mm -hmm. addressed in your written work exposure control plan. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So so then the next section goes on to em employee training, and I think this is a fixture in health standards uh, that employers must uh, provide training for employees such that employees can demonstrate knowledge and understanding of silica exposure and the employer's control program. And I think that the best way to, to effectuate this is through testing. Well, the, the point that we want to make here is, unlike other standards where the agency might have said you need to provide initial training on these topics, they have now specifically said the employee needs to continuously, 24-7, be able to demonstrate knowledge and understanding. <clears throat> so while they have not established any requirement for refresher training or anything else, the reality of it is people forget the training that's provided unless it's refreshed, and therefore... In order to meet this requirement, there's an unstated but ongoing continuous training requirement, and people are going to have to look out for that and be able to demonstrate it, which probably means, as you're suggesting, testing. If, uh, in general industry, an employee is exposed at the action level, at the action level, for 30 or more days per year, uh, the medical surveillance section of the standard requires uh, medical surveillance uh, obligations kick in. Uh, and in construction, it's triggered by uh, whether or not an employee is required to use a respirator for 30 or more days per year. Um, there are some fairly involved uh, requirements surrounding medical surveillance, which we wouldn't have time for in this program. We could do a whole program on, uh, but but they spelled, they're spelled out not only in the medical surveillance section, but I urge you to consider that this is one of those standards where the appendices, a lot of, a lot of the action in the standard lives in its appendices, and I believe Appendix B is uh, gives more speci specifics about uh, medical surveillance as well as some, some release forms. Um, the standard does call for respirators, but, but they're permissible only if you've already implemented engineering and work practice controls and still cannot maintain exposures at or below the permissible exposure level. Um, you may also use respirators while you're implementing engineering controls and work practices and uh, in restricted work areas as well. Uh, my recollection is in the proposed rule, there was a proposal about clothing 
and they had talked about, or they had asked, what they, if I recollect, what they'd really done was asked stakeholders to comment on whether or not there should be co uh, clothing control, like taking clothing and removing it uh, at the work site. Uh, after a lot of comments came in, uh, that did not find its way into the final rule. Uh, let's keep moving. Uh, so, so there's a fairly complicated schedule for implementation of the rule. The effective date of this rule in both construction and in general industry and maritime is June 23 of 2016. Uh, the pr in general industry, the primary compliance deadline is June 23, two years later, 2018, and the medical surveillance program uh, is staggered. If, if you have, through initial assessment, uh, an exposure above the permissible exposure level for 30 or more days a year, then you have to comply with the medical surveillance part of the standard at the same time, June 23, 2018. However, if you're between the action level and the PEL, at or above the action level but below the PEL, you have an additional two years or four years from now, June 23, 2020. Uh, for hydraulic fracturing, the implementation dates uh, go as far back as five years, 2021. Uh, and in construction, a similar concept but shorter. Uh, the compliance deadline is uh, June 23, 2017, which is next year. Uh, and specifically for developing methods of sample analysis an additional year. Uh, the methods for sample analysis and the sending it off to approved laboratories is spelled out in Appendix A. There's, I think, six requirements for the methodology for sample analysis, and they're spelled out in Appendix A, and I think that they're, they're really important to review and understand, uh, and that has to uh, be complied with by in two years, uh, June 23, 2018. And one thing somebody in a manufacturing environment might be on lookout for would be the possibility that the activity that they're engaged in in the site might be a construction activity and therefore have an earlier compliance deadline. I'm seeing we're getting a lot of questions, and I love that. Uh, this is one of the fantastic things about the OSHA 3030. Uh, and I think that what we're trying to do, if we, in the interest of time, is trying to address some of these offline uh, directly with the person who asked it. The state plan states always have an obligation to adopt a federal standard that a standard that is at least as effective as a federal standard within six months. So you can expect in the state plan states that kind of uh, rulemaking initiative to be underway. Larry, you and I uh, and our OSHA practice do work in virtually all of the state plan states at the same level of activity as we work in the federal OSHA uh, states. And so I think this is an issue of great interest to you and I as well. Uh, practical tips. Let's, let's spend uh, just a couple more minutes on practical tips. I think, first of all, it's very clear to me as I read through the obligations that employers should first and quickly determine which of their activities would qualify under Table 1, under the control banding uh, concept, and and if they qualify, then to follow Table 1. I think that's a, um efficient way to comply with a, a bulk of the burdens under the standard. Uh, and then, of course, I think that you have to determine exposure assessment and uh, assess what other engineering controls uh, need to be implemented, such as wetting down work operations using wet tools, uh, the cleaning methods, and which of the cleaning methods can be done wet, uh, installing local exhaust ventilation or improving on your local exhaust ventilation if you already have it, uh, and then process isolation or isolating a specific process uh, against the rest of the establishment or facility. Larry, what are your thoughts here? Well, 
I have not any predictions about legal challenges, but I would think that people should assume the standard is going to go into effect and view this phase in period as time to do some experimenting. There may be some trial and error to determine what will work, if water methods might be used, but they might cause some problems with a process or damage a product. That's got to be something that's going to be determined so you can figure out what other alternatives might be available. But the, the general gist of things is uh, the agency is given various time frames of a year or two to come into compliance, not with the idea that people would wait until that time period expires to start thinking about what to do, but to really think about now what kind of changes might be needed, if any, to come into compliance with that pill. In some of the uh, industries, as you point out, this is going to be a huge challenge, a bigger challenge than others, where, as you say, wet operations or wet cleaning is simply not practical or can create other hazards. Mm -hmm. um, there, are, for you know, there may be people who will say, okay, we're, we also want to get down below the action level, so basically we can come out from coverage under the standard altogether, and that will take some further examination. So there, there's a lot of work to be done to come in compliance with the standard. So, so the other things that I'd suggest are uh, the development during this interim period of reliable collection uh, systems and, and reliable measure, methods of measuring silica at the Pell or action level. Uh, OSHA suggests that there's 40 laboratories out there that can meet the requirements for sample analysis, uh, and the methods of collecting samples are spelled out in Appendix A. I think that this is somewhat problematic because the methods for collection that they've spelled out, as you and I have discussed, have inherently uh, a sample analysis error uh, a potential, and uh, they go above and below the current action level and permissible exposure level such that I don't see how an employer can ever reliably know well, whether, whether yeah. they're going to get the same results as a compliance safety and health officer. I think the, the important thing to do for someone who really wants to be proactive is to go out, do the sampling relatively soon, but of course it's got to be when you have the control measures you think you're going to use in place, uh, because these laboratories are going to start getting tied up with demand to try to meet the standard. So again, you, you can't wait till toward the end of the compliance time frame. Um, then with that in mind, then you'll have a better idea about what's going to be needed in order to come into compliance. And say it could take a fair amount of time. Um, as far as the issue you've raised, the thing to do, which is probably going to cost more than OSHA has predicted, is to take enough samples that you have a statistically analysis, you know, supported analysis for your exposure level. So when the OSHA compliance officer comes in and takes one sample and gets a high number, you can say, well, we've sampled this thing 20 times and here's what we've got right. to try to head that off. Right. You, you may be able to concede that it's within the range of your samples, but... Uh, but that the average is nevertheless below. And or, yeah, or maybe that's just a, an outlier that yeah. the inspector happened to get, but that's going to require an investment of time and planning to be prepared for that. Right, right. You know, we could expect some potential uh, post-rule challenges are out there. Uh, surely there's a possibility that you can challenge the validity of OSHA's risk assessment uh, of its te technical feasibility analysis. Uh, or if it's economic analysis. And, and one of the things about technical feasibility is, as we just discussed, the sample collection methods or the sample analysis error um, variance. And uh, the availability of laboratory resources, frankly, not just laboratories that are qualified, but whether there are enough such laboratories 
to handle what OSHA is requiring of an entire uh, nation's uh, affected employers. Um, <clears throat> I, I think there's an opportunity to challenge the feasibility and, and their cost estimates. Uh, and, and for those of you who are considering uh, where you stand with regard to the post rule challenge, give, give either Larry or me or anyone else here at Conor Neckman uh, a ring, and we can discuss that more with you offline, uh, because I think that, there, as you know, there's a narrow window, and there are some important issues to first to discuss and analyze uh, before going that route. Um, thank you very much. That's about all we have time for. I should say that's more time than we had, and I'm grateful to all of you for participating uh, and bearing with us. There's a short survey at the end of this program. Uh, our PDF and our audio will be posted on our site, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, in about a day or so, and so you can pick that up. You can forward it on to your colleagues. Not only that, we're now on podcast. Uh, the OSHA 3030 can be picked up on your phone and taken with you. You don't have to be at your desk anymore to hear it streaming on the web, uh, on the web uh, but you can still do so. Uh, and we're also posting uh, updates from time to time on our LinkedIn page, Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health. So I urge you to, to join that page as well uh, and to check out our podcast of the OSHA 3030 or uh, our library of prior OSHA 3030s. Uh, again, thank you all. Larry, thank you very much for joining me, uh, and I hope to talk to you again uh, in about 30 days. And until then, stay safe.